live deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plague come in one day, death, and mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. We'll stop there for this morning. Let's have a word of prayer together. Lord, now as we look into your word, we obviously need your help because we are weak of understanding. And Lord, many of these things in this passage of scripture, in this part of the Bible, are hard to understand and hard to put in the context of today's culture and today's life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to us. He indwells those who believe in you. But, Lord, help him to open our hearts and minds to teach us those things that we need to hear today. And help us to be ready to receive them so that we might understand how it applies to us in our lives as your followers. And, Lord, I need your help as your speaker, as your mouthpiece. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and with your power. Give me your wisdom and your words so that we might hear from you today. We want you to be proclaimed, your, your truth to be given today. We want Jesus Christ to be lifted up and for him to receive all the glory for, for what we do. And so we thank you for your work today, and we just praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So in chapter 18, we started looking at this a couple weeks ago, and chapter 18 is the economic Babylon or the economic system of the world during the Antichrist that will exist in this one-world government and a one-world economy. Now, we're not there yet. Okay, People have asked me, are we getting there? Are we getting close? Okay, yeah, I think we're getting close, but we're not there yet. Okay, uh, Babylon is going to be rebuilt. I don't know if it's going to be rebuilt before the tribulation starts or during the beginning part of the tribulation, but it's going to be rebuilt. And I shared some of that with you last week as that process is already happening. But what we see here is the destruction not just of the city itself, but of this greedy, commerce-driven uh, economic system that will rule the world at the time of the Antichrist. And in chapter 17, let me remind you that God basically, through the nations of the world, takes down all false facades of religion and exposes all false religion in the earth to show that it's nothing more than the worship of Satan. And that's gone. Now, what we're going to see next week is when the people lament the fall of Babylon, there's lamenting about the loss of the money part of it, but there was never mourning about the loss of the religion part of it, which really shows people's hearts. And so what we have here is the focus of what the world is going to be all about in the end times. It's all about myself. It's all about greed. It's all about prosperity. And I showed you how the Antichrist is going to offer that to everyone in the earth, and that's why he has such a great following. How can anyone be as great as this guy? Look, he's given us everything. Religion that of our choice, wealth and riches, peace. And so people will follow him, and God's going to destroy all of it. In chapter 17, he takes down the religious facade, and in chapter 18, he literally, at the end of, the, at the end of tribulation, will destroy the city that is at the center of this economic system that has caught everybody in. John MacArthur calls this a commercially prosperous, prosperous but morally bankrupt society, and I think that's a great description of what the world will be at that time. 
maybe a great description of what the world is now. And hopefully we are not caught up in that. But in verses 1 through 3 last week, we saw the angel declaring judgment from God upon the city because of its great evil influence over all the nations and people of the earth. And today as we start in verse 4, we have the, the call from God, and we touched on this a little bit last week, but we have the call from God to flee the city both figuratively and literally to avoid destruction and judgment to themselves. And so we start in verse 4, and God's call, it says a voice. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. God is calling his people to come out of this system and literally to come out of this city at this point. Now, we don't know exactly who's speaking here. I say it's the voice of God. It could be another angel proclaiming the message of God. But really, who is speaking is not important. The message we know comes from God because he's saying, come out of her, my people. That's people who are following Jesus Christ. Even in the tribulation, there will be people who will be saved and will be followers of Jesus Christ. And God is calling them specifically to come out of the city of Babylon, this center of corrupt commerce and this greed that has overcome the world. And he's saying, you have to come out of her or you're going to suffer the same judgment that the city is going to suffer. And the message is not just for the people of the end times, it's for us as well. Okay, and I said this last week. This message is for believers, And believers should not be caught up in the world. In fact, this message has been given over and over and over in Scripture to God's people, starting with Israel. In fact, if you go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, remember God came to Abraham. And Abraham lived in Ur, which was part of the Chaldees. Does that sound familiar? That later became Chaldea, of which Babylon was the capital. But Ur was in the Chaldees, in this same area, and God called Abraham out of it. Now, he didn't just call him out of the area. He called him out of the sinful practice and lifestyle of the world as well. And then he gave, them the, gave him the promise that he would make of him a great nation. And from that point on, Abraham followed God. In fact, he's a great picture of what Christians ought to be because he never settled down after that. God never said, I want you to go here and set up a house and stay there. He wandered through the land of Canaan, the promised land, for the rest of his life until God took him home. And basically, we are wanderers, pilgrims in this, land, in this earth until God takes us to our real home. And so we shouldn't feel at home here, and we certainly shouldn't get entrapped by the systems of this world, whether they be economic or religious or political or whatever, Okay? Our home is in heaven. We need to live as if our home is in heaven. But we assume here that this voice is the voice of God, given this warning. It's the same warning that God gave to Lot just before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's very reminiscent of that call. Remember, God told Lot to get out, take his family, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah because he was going to destroy it. In fact, he sent angels to literally push him out of the city to get him out of the line of judgment. And that's what God's telling his disciples here, the people that truly worship him, flee. He gave this message to Israel in Isaiah 52. He says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from her, be clean, ye who bear the vessels of the Lord. 
And you can read in the Old Testament prophecy how God many times admonished Israel to come out of the world. And specifically, in this instance, to come out of Babylon, because Babylon was about to be destroyed or overcome by the Medes and the Persians. Jeremiah 51 has the same message. My people go out of the midst of her, talking about Babylon, and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. And I shared with you last week how Jeremiah 50 and 51 is probably the most descriptive uh, explanation of the destruction of Babylon that we have in Scripture. And it's all prophetic. And I showed you those parallels. But it goes into the New Testament. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's the same message. Come out of the world. Don't be tied to them. He goes on and he says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness or unrighteousness? We can't have fellowship with the world. We can't be entrapped by the world. And here's the truth of it. If our admiration and our goals and everything that we live for is for things that the world can give us, then this is the only heaven we will ever experience. Our best life is not now, contrary to some popular books. Okay, our best life is yet to come in heaven. And if our best life is now, then we don't have a future in heaven. And that's the people God's talking about as far as the destruction and the judgment that's going to come upon them is because they've rooted themselves in the world, the systems of the world, the things that the world can provide, and they put more value on the dirt than they do on the gold that's in heaven waiting for us. Ephesians chapter 5, 11 tells us the same thing. Paul says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And so separation from the world is the mark of a true believer. They will not be drawn in. They will not be entrapped by the world because the world really has nothing to offer us. God tells his people here that staying in Babylon is basically like staying in Sodom. What if Lot had not left? He would have been destroyed. And so God is telling the people in the, at the end of the tribulation, his people, get out of the city. Get out of the system, but get out of the city specifically here. Run. And that's the only way you're going to avoid judgment. And there's two reasons that he gives for them to get out. And, and he says, so that, number one, they won't be considered partakers of Babylon's sins. Look at verse 4. He says, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Now, here's the big question. Just because we partake of the world's systems, does that mean that we are partakers of the sins? And I think we have to answer that no, because we all have to use money. Okay? It's a necessary evil. It's how we buy and sell goods. But things were, are getting to the point, and they have all through history, but things are getting to the point where people's lives then focus on the money. Earning money, making money, spending money, managing money, investing money. It's all about money. And that becomes the most important thing in their life. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to be distracted by because then we put more value on that than we do on Christ. And we worship money, literally worshiping Satan then, instead of worshiping God. And so Paul said, or, or God says here, you need to come out of her so that you won't be partakers of Babylon's sins. I have to say this, and I think 
the Bible substantiates it, that if somebody is so wrapped up in the world that that's all they ever think about and God is just kind of a secondary thought or something they add to their life, there's no true life there. They're not a true believer because a true believer will not get caught up in the world. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew chapter, uh, I can't remember the chapter, but uh, Jesus talks about uh, the parable of the, the sower. And he says there's four kinds of ground. You, and, he, and he says the seed, the truth of God, is put on these four kinds of ground. And there's first the hard ground. The seed is snatched up by Satan. It doesn't even penetrate. Those are people who don't care at all. They don't want to hear it. Then there's the thorny ground. The thorny ground is the, the ground where the seed actually starts to grow, but then the thorns come up and choke it out. That's what we're talking about here. And Jesus said, those people don't have life. They don't reproduce. They don't have fruit. Okay? That parable is not about three kinds of Christians. It's about three kinds of people who think they might be Christian, or at least two, thorny and stony ground, but they bear no fruit. And Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them. So if you're more concerned about the cares of the world... There's no real life in you. That was Jesus' message, and that, that's what God is saying to these people. Show that you are my people by coming out of this world and coming out of this system. In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and then he prays for all of those who would believe, including all of us. But he says, I would that you would keep them from the world, not that you would take them out of it physically, but that you would keep them from being entangled in it. Okay, And so it's the same message that we see here in Revelation 18. God is saying, number one, you need to run, stay out of the world so you won't be partakers of the sins of Babylon. And then number two, so that you don't receive the judgment associated with the plagues God will send. And he says that at the end of verse four, that ye be not partakers of her sins and that ye receive not of her plagues. He's about to send massive judgment, as we'll see in a minute, And he's literally telling these people in the city, get out of the city. You need to run. But it's a broader message. Stay out of the system. Now, at this point in the tribulation, remember, we're at the almost the end of the seven years. At the three and a half year mark, we had the mark of the beast that was instituted, where people could only buy and sell as they took the mark of the beast. And surprisingly, God has spared and sealed many people who are true followers who have not submitted to that mark. He has kept them alive, not being able to buy and sell in this market. But they are faithful believers. And now he says, get out of the city because I'm about to exact judgment upon it. He says that you won't be partakers of the plagues. Now, the plagues of verse 4 are described in verse 8. Jump down to verse 8 just very briefly. He says, therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. There's the plague that God's about to exact upon Babylon, the city. Death, mourning, famine, and fire. So this message is not just for them, but it's for all of us. Now God gives the reasons for judgment. In the verses following, in verse 5, he says, For her sins have reached up, up into heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. That's an interesting phrase that he uses, God, her sins have reached up to heaven. The word reached here in the Greek is the word kolao, I'm sorry, kolao. 
and it means to glue or weld together. And he combines it with this idea of piling up. And so think about sins, this picture of sins piling up, glued together, becoming a large mass, reaching higher and higher into heaven. Sounds a lot like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? That's exactly the picture God's giving us. Remember, the Tower of Babel was to highlight man's accomplishments, that we can reach ourselves and reach heaven through our accomplishments. And God says, yeah, your sins have reached to heaven, but you haven't. Just as you have tried to build the Tower of Babel, your sins have been built so high that they've reached me. I see them, and I will not forget them, he says. And remember, Babylon was the center of all of that evil. And so here it is, the center of God's judgment, because their evil is so great. And he says, it says God has remembered her iniquities. This is the destiny of all who live for pleasure and gain. But remember what God says to believers in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I will remember your sins no more. See, there's the great contrast. For unrepentant sinners, people who are rebellious against God, they don't want to submit to him. God remembers every single sin. But for those of us whose sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says God has removed them as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. We have been justified, and he sees the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our, our sins anymore. But here, he says, I remember every single sin. They have piled as high as heaven. And so because of these things, he's going to judge them, and he defines the judgment in verse 6. He says, therefore, reward her even as she has rewarded you. Double unto her according to her works in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. Now, in the Greek, this word for reward is apodidomi. It means literally to pay back a debt. That means this is something that's owed to them. Not just, I want to give this to them. But God is using a word when he says reward them or render to them. He's saying they're going to get paid back exactly what they have earned. Now, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that the wages of sin is what? Death. We earn that in our sin. And so God is continuing in that principle here, and he's saying Babylon has earned this judgment. And when he says reward her, it's saying pay them what they're due. But then he says we're going to double that. We're going to give them double payment for their sins. Now, if you go back to the law in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 22, when a thief stole something, they were required to pay double back for their crime. And so God is using that principle here. He's saying, number one, you've earned this. And number two, you have stolen something that doesn't belong to you. Number one, the glory of God, which belongs only to him. They are only seeking their own glory. Number two, they have stolen the souls of people that they've seduced with their systems and their seduction. And so God says, you're a thief. And therefore, you're not just going to get paid what you are owed. You're going to get paid double. Now, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul, talking about elders, he says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who work labor and especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. 
If God has appointed a double reward in honor for those who labor for him, then here those who labor against him, drawing people away from him, receive double the punishment. And that's basically what he's saying. We're going to pour out double what they've dished out to God's people, against God's people. Now, all through history, Babylon has been the symbol of oppression against God's people. Nimrod was no nice guy when he started building Babylon. He was in rebellion to God. He led people away from God. That's why God confused their languages at Babel, so that they wouldn't, couldn't consolidate their power and strength and glorify themselves. That was his way of humiliating and humbling them. And yet mankind, ever since that period, has sought to, seek, to, to glorify himself, to lift himself up without God's help, to show the world how great we are, We don't need a God. Or we can make a God of our own making. We don't need the God of Scripture. And those people who are involved in that will receive double. Specifically Babylon here. He says we're going to pour out double upon them. Psalm 37 verses 1 and 2. This is David. And David is running for his life at this point. Remember, Saul is trying to kill him, but he says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. The ancient city of Babylon crushed Israel uh, after David's time. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, they took and put them in exile and bondage. You can read about that in Daniel. Daniel was one of those people who was exiled. Here, the revived city of Babylon under the rule of Antichrist is going to crush God's people. We've seen that through Revelation already. They're going to kill saints. In fact, as we read later on in chapter 18 and as we read in chapter 17, Babylon is guilty of the blood of saints. And so they've crushed God's people. And God is finally going to give her the reward for her cruelty and sin. Now, here's a question that's on many people's minds. If The sin, not just of Babylon, but if the sin of all these wicked people is so bad, why doesn't God judge them now? And remember back in Revelation chapter 6, when we read about the seals, and in the fifth seal, there were the martyred saints under the altar praying to God and asking him, how long, O God, are you going to wait to avenge our blood on these people who have killed us? And God says, just wait. I'm going to accomplish my will. Judgment is coming, but you need to wait. And I'm sure the people now have the same question. How long, God, are you going to let evil go rampant, not just in our country, but in the world? How long, God, are you going to let these wicked people prosper in their way? And David reminds us, fret not because of evildoers, because they will soon be cut down like the grass. See, God will judge sin. That is not a question. We need to hold that as an absolute truth. God will judge sin. He will judge our sin if it's not reconciled under the blood of Christ. But God will judge sin in his way and in his time. And just as he told the martyrs under the altar in heaven, praying, when are you going to avenge these? He's saying the same thing to us. Just wait. God has a plan. God's in control. The world has not gotten out of his control. 
and he will judge sin. And here, in chapter 18 of Revelation, we see the culmination of his ultimate judgment against Babylon, which is the center of where all of that started. In verse 7, in Revelation 18, God compares the judgment to the crime. He says, She has glorified herself and lived deliciously. She has said in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. This is a reference to the pride of the world and the worldly people who think they're getting away with their sin. That because God hasn't judged us yet, nothing is ever going to happen. God doesn't care. See? That's the argument. And that's exactly what we read here. She hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. The, li- the word delicious there is in luxury. The luxury of the world. Trying to amass all of the riches of the world to yourself. And he says... Um, it goes on, he says, She saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. In other words, no one can touch me. I'm above the world. I'm above everything. In Babylon, if you look at the, the perspective that John is giving us in this vision, Babylon is going to be above the whole world at this point in the tribulation period. And so the attitude is, I sit as a queen. Nobody can touch me. I am no widow. In other words, you can't touch my people. You can't touch my children or my husband. And I shall see no sorrow. Nothing bad can happen to me because I am the ultimate. That's the attitude of pride. And people who are proud think God will never judge them. They can get away with whatever they want to. In Isaiah chapter 47, verses 8 through 11, God says this, Therefore hear now this, that thou art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thy heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall sit, not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries, for the great abundance of thine enhancements. For thou hast trusted in wickedness. Thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom, thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore, evil shall come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. That is Isaiah's prophecy. God speaking through that prophet of the final destruction and ultimate destruction of this sinful city of Babylon. And not just the city, but the world that follows it. The people of the world may be living a good life with the attitude, oh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, there's this annihilationist idea that once you die, uh, you know, the body decays, that's the end of it. Nothing ever happens. Not true. Okay, we all have souls that will either spend an eternity with God in heaven or an eternity with, without him in hell. Judgment is coming. But the pride, the, the proud people think, nobody can touch me. I can do whatever I want. I am above authority because they are their own authority. And so people swell with pride and arrogance, and yet we must remember that the Bible says, Him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And right here in Revelation 18, we see a perfect fulfillment of that principle. Now, that applies to all of us. 
None of us can think we have our own lives under our control and we call the shots and get away with it. God will judge that sin. But God says here that this judgment is going to come upon you. And he says in verse 8, the judgment is going to come swiftly and completely. He says, therefore, her plague shall come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall utterly be burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Think about this. All the judgment that has been held back for over 4,000 years will come bursting forth from God in one day. Now, I wouldn't want to be in the center of that. I wouldn't want to be the target of any of God's judgment. But think of 4,000 years' worth piled up, and in one day it's unleashed. John Walverd, the theologian, says the fact that her judgment comes in one day is emphasized here in the Greek by having this phrase in one day placed first in the sentence. And if you read it in the Greek, that's the first phrase. In one day, your judgment will come. So it's emphasized. God is emphasizing it's going to happen, and it's going to come suddenly. So there's no doubt about the literalness of the city being destroyed literally in one day to the ground. And it's going to be characterized by death and mourning, we see in verse 8. It shall come in one day, death and mourning and famine. In fact, Isaiah 47 tells us that women will lose children and husbands. And it's a metaphor describing how Babylon will lose the people that live there. Babylon, in a sense, being the mother, all of those who are supported by Babylon being their children, and they will all be killed, literally in a day. Jeremiah 50, verse 40 says, As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, so shall no man abide there, neither shall any son of man dwell therein. There will be no survivors, folks. That's why God tells his people, get out now. Because there's no survivors. Jeremiah 51, verse 43, her cities are a desolation, a dry land, a wilderness, a land wherein no man dwelleth, neither doth any son of man pass by. And J. Vernon McGee states this, it is God who destroys this city because he alone is able to do it. The last phrase of verse 8 tells us that, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Now, what's not here is how it will happen. There's been a lot of speculation. I've read a lot of commentaries. I've read a lot of people's opinions and interpretation. Some people say that this is connected with the last plagues or the last bold judgments that are poured out right at the end of the tribulation. That's possible, especially because the, the uh, seventh bowl in Revelation 16:19 says, And God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So it's possible. Some commentators have gone so far as to speculate, well, this is nuclear war. How else are you going to destroy a city with fire in one day? It's possible. But I can tell you this with certainty. It's God who accomplishes this. It's not mankind. Because it's God's judgment. And so here in chapter 18, we have this sudden and total destruction of the great city of Babylon for the great sin of its people and the great influence it had on the world in dragging them down into its own pit. Now, as we progress into the bulk of the rest of this chapter, it talks about the lamenting of the people who lament over the city's destruction. I'm not going to get into the details today. 
But anything that is in rebellion against God, anything that values God or values something else more than God will be destroyed. When we go to heaven, we're not taking anything with us. When we go to hell, we're not taking anything with us if that's where we're going. It's just our soul. If we go to heaven, we have Jesus Christ. That's all we need. If we go to hell, we have nothing except torment and suffering. No Jesus Christ. And that's the ultimate suffering. But just as God will destroy Babylon in one day, all of us are going to meet our maker in one day. We don't get to plan okay, well, my birth certificate says it expires on this day, so I know when I'm going to die. That doesn't happen. It's in God's hands. And so we will all eventually meet destruction in the physical sense where our body's going to die. But the question is, are we going to still have Jesus Christ at that point because we've committed ourselves to him now, or are we going to walk away empty-handed in judgment and be eternally destroyed? eternally in judgment. If God took everything away from you that you value other than him right now, what would you miss the most? The people of Babylon missed the wealth. They missed the benefit, the earthly benefits. And if we were one of those people, what would we be lamenting? That's the question. And we'll pick that up next week. But there's a great message for all of us here, even in the prophecy of the end times. Where is our treasure? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So make sure your treasure's in the right place. We're going to stop there and have a word of prayer. We'll pick that up next week with verse 9. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the message and the warning that you've given us that applies to us even today. Lord, we need to come out of the world. We need to come out of its systems to not be enthralled with all of the things that the world offers because then there's no need for salvation. You've not saved us to give us the benefits of the world. You've saved us to give us the benefits that only can be found in Christ. And that should be of most value to us, Lord. Help us to see that. Help us to live that way as your true followers and help us to come out of Babylon to show that we are your people. Father, we thank you that you do judge sin. We don't like to see people suffer, but it's in your great justice that this needs to be done. And so we praise you and thank you that you do judge sin. And Lord, we thank you that you have forgiven our sin, those who have believed in the name of Jesus Christ, whose sins are washed in the blood of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the life that we have in him. But Lord, as Ephesians tells us, help us to be faithful to that calling. To show Christ to the world because he is what we live for. And so Lord, I thank you for your truth today. Help us not to be just hearers, but to be doers only. So that we might give you glory in all we do and say. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our our closing hymn today is number 414 question is, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? You know, when we, before we partook of communion, I read from 
Corinthians, it says we must examine ourselves. And here's that question. Am I truly a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? So let's stand and